Faye, I don't know about you, but out here in Washington, we're starting to see COVID on the rise yet again. Same here. We're getting a lot more COVID patients back on the wards over here, Nick. I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to really like find and get back into what exactly I needed to do with a COVID patient after not seeing patients for so long with it. Yeah. And the good thing is, you know, a lot of these resources are on the OBG Project's website and you can go in and go and find all the information that you need about COVID-19 outside of pregnancy and in pregnancy. Yeah, they've got a button on their website that has topics ranging from FAQs for gynecologic care, treatment guidelines for COVID-19 if you've been reassigned outside and been placed into an ICU, as well as key research um, that's coming out, new stuff every single day. Exactly. And the best way to get all of this information is if you subscribe to OBG First, which is their subscription service, you can get all of this information plus more and also create your own library of all the resources that you want from their website. If you're a chief resident, you can get OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, see how you can get OBG First and all these nice COVID-19 updates for absolutely free. Hey, everybody. We are going to take the time right now to ask for your help in filling out a survey for one of our OBGYN resident colleagues over at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's right. So Abby Bernard is a PGY2 there, and she's performing a survey study currently looking at how virtual fellowship interviews have affected the application and interview process for everybody involved in OBGYN fellowship applications. You're eligible to participate if you've recently applied to fellowship, if you're a current fellow, or you're a faculty member within a subspecialty and may have participated in interviews. So if you're able to, please go ahead and go on to her link to fill out the survey. That link is redcap.link slash virtual interview. So once again, that's redcap.link slash virtual interview. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Christy Gandhi. Um, Christy is one of our old friends from Brown University Women and Infants Hospital in Rhode Island. She's now a second year, or third, excuse me, a third year resident. Wow, God, time flies. rising chief, my goodness. Um, But she's here to talk with us today about intrauterine fetal demise. Um, Thanks for coming on, Christy. Thanks for having me. This is such a, this is such a joy. So Christy, what are our learning objectives for today? So today we will be defining um, intrauterine fetal demise and reviewing its risk factors. We will talk about the workup of stillbirths, including laboratory, autopsy, and genetic studies. We'll briefly review the management and delivery options, and we will talk about what to do in future pregnancies. All right. Sounds great, Christy. Let's get started, I guess. Um, This is certainly like a tough subject, um, but one that I think all of us, even during our residencies, encounter at some point or another. Um, Talk us through terminology definitions to start. Yeah. So um, intrauterine fetal demise is more commonly known as stillbirth, and actually some parent groups prefer the term stillbirth. Recent research has also started using this term instead, so in this episode, we'll we'll be also using the term stillbirth. Stillbirth is defined as fetal loss at 20 weeks gestation 
Or if the gestational age is unknown, then loss of a 350 gram fetus or larger. And this, this weight is chosen because it's the 50th percentile weight at 20 weeks. Of note, this definition varies internationally. So um, how frequent is stillbirth, Christy? And talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the risk factors and things like that. Yeah, so stillbirths account for one in 160 deliveries in the United States, which amounts to approximately 23,600 stillbirths reported annually in this country. And some of the maternal conditions that are known risk factors include diabetes and hypertensive disorders, which can increase the risk by two to five fold, obesity, history of previous stillbirth, maternal age at either end of the reproductive spectrum. Um, We also know that maternal race and ethnicity play a role. Non-Hispanic Black women have more than twice the risk of stillbirth when compared to non-Hispanic white women. And these disparities persist despite adjusting for prenatal care and education level. Structural racism and implicit bias in the healthcare system and preceding healthcare disparities are all implicated. Other risk factors include assisted reproductive technologies, smoking, cholestasis of pregnancy, lupus, or renal disease. Some of the fetal conditions include uh, late-term pregnancy, decreased fetal movement, oligohydramnios, fetal growth restriction, multiple gestations, and abnormal karyotype. Christy, when I've seen patients with stillbirth, um, I think the first question that always comes out is why, right? Um, that's always something that folks ask when, when they have an unfortunate outcome like this. Playing probabilities or potential reasons, I guess, what is the why overall? That's a great question, Nick. And oftentimes our, par- our patients definitely ask the same question. Um, potential causes of stillbirths include uh, placental abruption, which is identified as a cause of stillbirth in 5 to 10% of cases. Uh, genetic abnormalities, um, an abnormal karyotype can be found in approximately 6 to 13% of stillbirths. Infections are often associated in 10 to 20% of stillbirths, and umbilical cord events occur in approximately 10% of stillbirth cases. The Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network actually evaluated about 500 stillbirths and identified a probable cause in almost 61% of cases. And a possible probable cause why it was identified in 76% of cases. They discovered that the placental pathology has the highest diagnostic yield, aiding in almost 65% of cases, followed by a fetal autopsy. Um, so let's get into that a little bit more, Christy. I mean, you know, certainly we'd have to look to kind of figure out some of these causes of stillbirth. So if a patient were to come in, they were to have a stillbirth and they kind of want to figure out why that occurred, what type of workup should we be um, counseling them about? Right. Yeah. So the first step is to uh, gain a thorough history. Um, That would be including a past medical history of the mom, exposure history, which would involve uh, medications, infections, tobacco, alcohol, or drugs, uh, an obstetric history, a family history. And in this, uh, for this step, a geneticist can be helpful because they can help design the three-generation pedigree to see if there are any genetic uh, predispositions to stillbirth. Laboratory tests that we often run include getting a syphilis panel, testing for Clyre-Becky tests, 
and also um, performing panel for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Um, because one of the clinical criteria to diagnose antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is stillbirth, gaining the getting the proper laboratory test, the lupus anticoagulant, the anticardiolipin, and the beta-2 glycoprotein test. What about other thrombophilias, A1C, other like serology stuff? Like I oftentimes will hear people want to test for those things too. Is that recommended or reasonable? That's a really great question. Um, the answer is that it shouldn't be a knee-jerk response to get those additional tests and should be done on a case-by-case -case basis based on the patient's risk factors. Um, so, for example, routine testing of inherited thrombophilias has not been shown to be helpful, but can be done, performed, if um, the patient's medical history suggests such. Performing an infectious serology panel is also not helpful. Um, and a hemoglobin A1C can be obtained for patients with diabetes or suspected diagnosis of their thereof. This is obviously a very difficult time for our patients, Christy. You know, losing a pregnancy, especially if it's desired, is definitely um, something that is very emotionally draining, emotionally difficult for our patients. How can we support our patients through their grief um, at this time? And what are some of the resources that we can point our patients to? Great question, Faye. The, so the support for our patients is twofold. It's, it's providing the emotional support and also clearly communicating test results. Uh, it's important to recognize their parenthood and acknowledge their grief, offering referrals to bereavement counselors and peer support groups, and communicating results of the workup in a timely manner. And, you know, a provider may feel at loss of words when approaching grief-stricken patients and parents for consent on an autopsy and for further workup. At times, the provider might feel as though they haven't developed a strong enough rapport with the parent group, so they may not offer an autopsy due to the concern that it might upset the parents even further. But it's really important to consider that the evaluation might provide answers and closure to these parents. And in fact, there was a study done by Rankin et al., which estimated that parents who did not consent to a postmortem examination were approximately twice as likely to regret their decision compared to those who chose to have this investigation performed. Um, so offering that autopsy can, can be helpful for uh, parents to get the closure that they need through this difficult time. Yeah, I found that's one of the hardest things to really talk about. Um... And you have to do it with some immediacy, too, because it has to go off to pathologists in order to perform the autopsy expeditiously and then release remains to a funeral home or crematory or however the, the parents decide. Um, talk to us a little bit more about autopsy and what options exist within autopsy. Sure, yes. Yeah. So there are two types of autopsies. We can have a partial or a complete autopsy. A partial autopsy involves gross inspection of the fetus and placenta, ideally by a trained perinatal pathologist, as well as imaging studies. And so approximately 20% of stillborn fetuses have dysmorphic features or skeletal abnormalities. And gross inspection would include measuring the weight of the fetus and the placenta, obtaining the head circumference and the length of the fetus, as well as obtaining frontal and profile photographs of the whole body, face, extremities, palms, and any other abnormalities. Uh, the gross and microscopic evaluation of the placenta, umbilical cord, and membranes by a trained pathologist is the single most useful aspect of the stillbirth evaluation. 
so here the pathologist can evaluate for abruption, umbilical cord thrombosis, filamentous cord insertion, previa infection, and anemia. So, and, and a complete autopsy in comparison is where the pathologist may take cross-section specimens and analyze the internal organs in a more thorough fashion. At Penn currently, we are also offering cytogenetics for patients who have stillbirths. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about what that entails and, and what that means? Absolutely. So cytogenetics is usually done with karyotyping or microarray. And uh, there are new research studies actually underway to evaluate if whole genome sequencing may yield better diagnostic utility. Uh, it's not currently part of the standard genetics workup in stillbirth evaluations. But the way that we do cytogenetics is that we have to first obtain a, a specimen. And acceptable cytogenetic specimens include um, either amniotic fluid that's obtained by amniocentesis done at the time of the, the prenatal diagnosis, um, or obtaining an internal fetal tissue specimen, such as at the site of the patella or the costochondrial junction. Uh, of note, skin is not recommended. We can also get a placental block or an umbilical cord segment. But truly, the, the gold standard specimen for cytogenetics is the amniotic fluid obtained uh, via amniocentesis at the time of diagnosis. Remember how earlier we said that approximately 20% of stillborn fetuses have dysmorphic features or skeletal abnormalities? Well, actually, 36% of these macerated or malformed fetuses will also have chromosomal abnormalities, such as monosomy X and trisomies. And so really putting together the gross inspection along with the cytogenetics can provide a high, high diagnostic uh, yield. We'll definitely review some of these genetic tests and yields in a future episode because they are super important to understand. Um, and they do go along with stillbirth, but also for a number of other things such as prenatal diagnosis. Another question that we commonly get, maybe not initially, but certainly at follow-up visits with patients who have experienced stillbirth, is what to do in a future pregnancy. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that, Christy? Sure, yeah. So in future pregnancies, we um, should offer aneuploidy screening and sonographic screening for fetal growth restriction after 28 weeks. Um, we should also provide antenatal fetal surveillance. So for patients with a previous stillbirth at or after 32 weeks, once or twice weekly antenatal surveillance is recommended starting at 32 weeks um, or even one to two weeks before the gestational age of the prior stillbirth. For prior stillbirths that occurred earlier than 32 weeks, individualized timing of antenatal surveillance should be considered. It's important to note that this is a balance of um, surveillance because although it may provide comfort to the patients and providers, it could potentially lead to iatrogenic preterm deliveries based on false positive test results. And one study actually estimated a 1.5% rate of iatrogenic pre prematurity for interventions based on false positive test results. So this must be weighed when deciding on the type and frequency of surveillance. And then for delivery, we aim to plan for delivery at 39 weeks gestation as or dictated by other maternal or fetal comorbid conditions. Awesome. Thank you so much for that information, Christy. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So Nick, why don't you and I try and summarize? Sounds good. Um, we started out with 
the definitions and terminology surrounding intrauterine fetal demise or stillbirth as it's preferentially known. Um, again, defined as a fetal loss at or after 20 weeks gestation or greater than 350 grams if the gestational age is unknown. Um, this amounts to about 1 in 160 deliveries in the U.S., about 24,000 stillbirths annually here. Risk factors can be both maternal and fetal. Maternal conditions include things like diabetes, hypertensive disorders, obesity, previous stillbirth, um, maternal age at either end of the reproductive spectrum, maternal race or ethnicity, assisted reproductive technology, smoking, cholestasis, and lupus or other renal disease. And fetal conditions um, include things like late-term pregnancy, decreased fetal movement, oligohydramnios, and other things like fetal growth restriction, multiple gestations, and abnormal karyotype. Causes of stillbirth are somewhat difficult to elucidate, but generally are caused by one of four categories of things, placental abruption, genetic abnormalities, infection, or umbilical cord accidents. Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network has published studies demonstrating a possible probable cause in almost 75% of cases, with placental pathology having the highest yield. A workup for stillbirth includes first maternal workup via history as well as laboratory evaluations. These include things like medical history and exposure to medication, certain types of infections, obstetric history and family history. And laboratory evaluation would include things like syphilis testing, a KB test, as well as antiphospholipid antibody syndrome testing. Um, other tests like routine inherited thrombophilias um, and infectious serology panels are not helpful. Grief and bereavement are important parts of stillbirth um, experience for patients and for providers. Emotional support and clear communication of results is paramount. Offering autopsies to patients include two types, a partial and a complete autopsy. A partial autopsy would involve gross inspection of the fetus and placenta, um, and a complete autopsy could also include things like cross-sections. The other thing to offer patients, if available, is cytogenetics evaluation, which is usually done with karyotyping and or microarray. The reason that this is important is that about 36% of stillborn fetuses will have some type of chromosomal abnormality. Tissue that can be collected for this would include things either like amniotic fluid from an amniocentesis or some type of internal fetal specimen. Future pregnancy guidance is important. Again, with future pregnancies, consider offering aneuploidy screening, sonographic screening for growth restriction after 28 weeks, antenatal surveillance for patients with stillbirth after 32 weeks, starting at 32 weeks, um, and planned delivery at 39 weeks. All right, Christy, thank you so much again for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about IUFD. Thank you for having me, guys. All right, so once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. This has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook or Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show and want to give us some support, Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. You can also find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Have a question, correction, or just want to send us some personal love, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.